This week on the Three Rural White Guys podcast, we discuss the Biden administration's infrastructure package. What kind of impact can it have on rural communities? Also joining us on the show is former First Lady of Iowa and former candidate for U.S. Congress, Christy Vilsack. We'll be talking to her about her biggest passion, education. And finally, to our rural progressive friends in Idaho, we hear you on social media. Keep letting us know how you're doing. We got your back. This is the Three Rural White Guys podcast. Let's get this going. Guys, we, we I think we made it. If we have someone like Christy Vilsack, a nationally renowned name, husband's a secretary of agriculture, former first lady of Iowa, former uh, congressional candidate in the state of Iowa. Holy criminy. Mike, I'm not happy until we book Matt Gates. Kellen, we promised for this episode we were going to be respectful and not get into the, the dirty politics because uh, because of our guests this week, right? Okay, well we'll put it, maybe we'll do a special little uh, a special little episode we'll publish after this because uh, we're trying to be super respectful and not get into politics too much on some of the absolutely ridiculous stuff that happened in our in our in our country today or this week uh, around the Republican Party. That said, there were some pretty amazing things that happened this week. Some announcements on uh, from the Biden administration, some other things. Uh, Kel and Jacob, what are your thoughts on, on recent political news uh, this week? Well, we have this infrastructure plan coming out, right? Yeah. That's pretty exciting. Uh, I didn't catch Biden's press conference today. Uh, I saw he was, uh, it's been about four hours ago. It was kind of towards the end of the work day. And I was, I honestly was tied up with quite a bit of stuff at work. So I didn't really get much of a chance to review it but uh, i think that's going to have some pretty significant impacts on the midwest uh, with high-speed rail education investment uh, 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 healthcare investment so uh, i think that's going to be definitely something they'll be looking at so jacob i just pulled some of them up here uh just on on, on the news here uh, it looks like a, a big piece of its transportation which we know will be huge for uh, rural communities to redo our aging and, and quite frankly breaking down um, transportation system uh, through through our through our counties, uh, bridges, roads, things like that, um, as well as just some transportation pieces, like you said, in terms of trains and, and electric vehicles in there, home care services. I thought this was one was really interesting. Looking at it, uh, really focusing on expanding access to long term care services under Medicaid, uh, so that especially home based services. I think that's fascinating, especially in, in rural communities like Iowa. We have an aging population, and this will give them far more options to be able to determine how they want to live and where they want to live in their sunset years of life. That's great. There's a big manufacturing piece in here. Um, research and development, I think, is fascinating around. Uh, there's $180 billion, uh, focused on climate science innovation, and uh, as well as eliminating racial and gender inequities in, in research and development in STEM fields. It's easy to sort of roll your eyes at that and be like, okay, that's fine. What's that have to do with Iowa or what's that have to do with rural communities? But that's, that's agriculture. That's the next big frontier agriculture is the next big frontier of STEM related um, issues around climate science. Uh, it's, it's carbon uh, sequestration. It's, it's, uh, it's cover crops, it's watershed issues with the water quality. Um, and then it's, how do you, how do you, we're going to get into that. I think later in the season is, is the new ag, the new industries around ag. Um, and maybe even Christy may talk about it. Her husband's, the, you know, the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture, so I'm sure she'll have a few things to say. Um, water, same thing. Uh, there's a whole section on water on this, $111 billion to improve water quality uh, going into households, um, especially rural infrastructure, specifically points out rural again. And then a, a big piece on schools uh, as well as digital infrastructure. And anyone that lives in rural communities understands clearly that broadband access and uh, is absolutely critical to to our economies going forward. Finally, some workforce development pieces, as well as some veterans hospital and federal buildings. And all that stuff connects to directly to rural communities. And I find that amazing because, quite frankly, most of the rural communities didn't vote for the Biden administration. They, they mostly went for Trump. And to his word, President Biden said he's going to be a president for all Americans not just for Democrats. And this infrastructure bill clearly shows that. Last week, we mentioned this being a $3 trillion package. It's actually a $2 trillion package. So, Right. And, you know, 
the cost is one thing, but to me, it's even more important is how did these policies get put together? How, how did this whole package, you know, get aligned to where these end up being the priorities? And as I hope Christy tells us, she served on this thing called the Education Unity Task Force, uh, which we'll let her explain a little more. But basically, it was a, a diverse group of people that came together to provide suggestions about priorities around education. And from what I understand, there's a bunch of these task force that the Biden administration put together to actually come up with good platform details for, for their policy. And it, it's almost like they're working with other people. They're coming up with good solutions to try to solve issues and, and advance our country as opposed to what we saw with the previous administration, which was how do we profiteer off the fact we found ourselves in these particular positions? Yeah, whole, 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 wait, 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 wait. So we, we, we put this task force together that's made up of actual experts from the field in question. Yep. As opposed to finding corporate donors and putting them in charge. Or of family it. members. What right. an amazing concept. <laughs> so, so you look at this and you say, we're back in America to having policy conversations, right? Instead of arguing about what stupid crap did somebody tweet lately, right? So we're back to having arguments about what are the benefits of moving the corporate tax rate from 21 to 28%. Like, I want that debate, right? I want that conversation about the benefits of a 28 versus 21% corporate tax rate. Those are the kinds of conversations I want to have. So we've been having those conversations the last couple of weeks is about the state level politics as well as national level. What do we got going on locally? What's going on in our own backyards in here in rural America? One sure sign of spring is the fact that uh, I'm I'm on the local girls softball board, uh, our rec league softball. So uh, I spent most of the weekend getting ready for that, uh, getting equipment ready and getting the fields ready. And uh, there's been quite a bit of work in that. And I had a board meeting last Tuesday that we put all the teams together. Um, the attendance was down this year. I think some of the COVID may have had something to do with that. Um, but I will tell you that it's a symptom of, of overall volunteerism in all other facets of life. We could not get coaches for all of our teams. We had to beg and plea to get people to coach. Really? And I think all of these sports are that way. And I think it's probably a, a trend, especially in rural areas, probably across the country. To some, I think it's probably not only a time commitment issue, but um you know it's a it's a i i'll be honest i can't uh, i've been a paramedic for 20 years been plenty of stressful situations i can't imagine you know coaching 14 <laughs> eight-year-old girls but nonetheless i mean it's it's an important thing and i think that that uh you know getting getting uh, coaches involved in new sports it's it's a it's a it's a benefit to our communities and it's it's one of those uh it's one of those amenities that people look look for right recreation and parks and those types of things it yeah, falls in line with that and that's uh representative smith last week talked about that he said we need amenities and communities right uh, we need to attract people to these communities and and i think mount pleasant in the area we live is is an area where our our city center has less than ten thousand people so just in terms of a census designated area right we're not even on the map in terms of a micropolitan so you just don't have the same kind of attention being drawn to this area as you do in other places. And, and, and just like a kind of rural moment here is th this afternoon, I, I circled town today um, unintentionally, but around lunchtime, I, you cruise the square. Is that I what you're saying? The square. Yeah. <laughs> I, I left, I left home uh, because that's all I've been. That's the only place I've been right in the last year and wanted some lunch. Um, I've been, I've had my first shot, but I wasn't ready to go sit down in a restaurant, but cruise around town. just went to the kind of typical places you go for drive through food around here. And every single place was just a line was into the street and none of them were of the quality that I was willing to wait in such a line. Right. So it was just, you know, your junk fast food place or nothing. That's what we've got. I mean, those aren't the kind of amenities that attract new people to your community, right? Right. So what are we looking for on that front then? Um, how do we spur better amenities? 
Well, how do you get a sandwich shop in town? Right. Other than the subway. Other right? than the subway. Right. I mean, you, you, you get a sandwich shop in town by encouraging somebody with capital to invest in the community, but but then you have to encourage people to patronize the business. Right. Or or get the same amount of patrons, but have lower costs so you can actually keep it afloat. And, you know, it's interesting that that's a, that's a thing. You mentioned sandwich shops. There's a big trend in rural communities right now called ghost kitchens. Familiar with that at all? Um, it's no. where you have one kitchen for multiple restaurants. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's maybe a shared space in between buildings or there might be four or five restaurants in, a, in an area or food trucks or whatever it may be. But they have one kitchen and they share it. And so either there's two or three in there at the same time using different space or they have scheduled times where somebody's doing dinner, someone's doing lunch, someone's doing breakfast, but it's still a shared kitchen or a shared even restaurant space in some and this cases. this is in rural areas? In rural areas. It's becoming one of these sort of pop-up, new, innovative ways to be able to save costs because the overhead for a lot of small businesses is 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 their property. It's yeah. the it's the rental of of a kitchen or a, or a dining room area and all that kind of stuff. So they're starting to learn how to share them to lower the overhead because the margins right now in most rural communities are just razor thin, razor thin. Yeah. And that, and that, that's okay, but you want to give people as much best chance you can of surviving and providing those really cool amenities. Um, like you speak of. I also read an article fairly recently where, especially in really small towns, and we actually have an example of this immediately to our West. Um, for the listeners at home, there's a, there's a small town called Lockridge. I'm not even certain if it's, actually an incorporated city but uh it it probably has i don't know 150 200 people in it i mean we're talking very small um and and the, those types of towns do not i was i guess maybe more unique than other rural states and that there's generally we still have these really tiny towns that are surviving to the point that you know it's only maybe four or five miles between communities um but uh uh they have no other sense of community you know, the schools have been consolidated and closed. There's no local grocery store or anything like that. And so all that's left is the little, like, lunch counter cafe. And uh, there's a growing trend in rural communities, and they've actually done this in Lockridge, where the cities have purchased the properties for those cafes and leased them out. Hmm. And and uh, the, the local cafe over there, I'm not actually entirely certain what the name is but it's it's one of those it's owned by the city at least out so just to create community and they're doing that with grocery stores too as well i've seen um you know small towns that are trying to keep a, a grocery store at least available locally they're they're putting these co-ops together and and doing like a lease type program so i mean small small communities are definitely finding ways to try and keep amenities but um but I, there's no doubt it's a struggle still for sure you know and that really goes into just how our rural communities need to be innovative uh whether or not it's economies whether or not it's education whether or not it's small businesses whatever it may be uh we have a lot of work to do and we have a lot of thinking outside the box to be able to revitalize our, our rural communities um and uh, hopefully our, our guest today uh christy vilsack will give us some good insight on on how she sees that happening Oh, I do want to give a shout out to all of the new listeners that we picked up in rural Idaho. Oh, oh, hey, yes. and I, I, I would love it if you could give us some feedback on our on our page. I've, I've mm -hmm. often, I, I don't know anybody personally from Idaho, so I've always wondered this. Uh, anytime I ever travel anywhere else in the United States and mm -hmm. people ask where I'm from, I say Iowa and they say, oh, well, that's where they grow potatoes. Right. Yeah. So, Iowa, so I'm curious Idaho. if you say you're from Idaho, do they think that's where they grow corn? Oh, that's oh, a good question. That's, yeah. I think that's the Ohio. Yeah, that's the uh, Ohio. Idaho, Idaho, Iowa. You're the, you're Idaho, the Buckeye State Idaho, that grows Idaho, potatoes. Iowa, Idaho, yeah. Iowa. Yeah, <laughs> I think Reagan has a shirt for that. Yeah, uh, yeah. If we could get uh, a little bit of feedback from our Idaho fans, uh, just just because it's it's outside the Midwest, right? We're up in a well, and it's typically a, viewed as a very highly conservative state. So knowing mm -hmm. that there are progressive-minded people in the middle of rural Idaho is pretty awesome. Speak to us, Idahoans. Yeah. We, we feel your pain, but we're Speak assuming their pain is much worse than ours. Talk to us. Right? We want to hear you. <laughs> like, the ones that actually are interested in this yeah. thing succeeding. Well, if they're this far into the episode. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
all that said, check us out on Facebook. Uh, we actually are pretty active. We try to respond when, when people comment as much as we can. We've got a, a, quite a few listeners now, so it's a little hard to keep up sometimes. But uh, we do try to be active. And um, we also share some really good articles that other people have written, things we write ourselves. Uh, that's how we've grown. And if uh, we're trying to just push a message that it's okay to be progressive in rural America. And in fact, it's probably important to be progressive in rural America. And the only way to do that is if we support each other and share each other's voices. So uh, please go on to our website, go on to Facebook, go on to Instagram, other places, and like us and share some of our stuff. And And we'll do the same for you. Share what you're doing in your communities uh, in rural America to, to push a, a progressive agenda to, to help make our communities better um, going forward. So uh, after the break, uh, we get to spend time with... Christy Vilsack. We'll be right back. Well, today on Three Rural White Guys, we have, oh, easily our, our biggest and best guests in the history of our show. I'm so excited to say we have Christy Vilsack. She is the former first lady of Iowa. She's a literacy advocate and politician. I know her as a middle school teacher and high school teacher growing up in right here in, in Mount Pleasant, Iowa, but she's also been a college professor. She ran for Congress. She also worked as an advisor with, with USAID, USAID, doing international work in education, which we'll get into hopefully today. Currently, she's a senior advisor at Colorado State University, working with the National Western Center with a focus on, on K-12 education programming. Christy, welcome to our podcast. We're so happy to have you on the show. I'm happy to be with you. It's like almost like being in Mount Pleasant, being home. So thanks for inviting me. I'm really excited about our conversation. Great, great. We're happy to have you here. Um, first of all, thank you for the service you've given to Iowa, to, to rural communities especially. Um, just the list I gave didn't even cover half the stuff you do in the background to uh, benefit our rural communities, especially around education um, all over this country. And I don't even want to start talking about our country first. I, I actually have a affinity for some of your work with, with USAID, USAID. Do you say USAID or USAID usually? It kind of depends on the audience. Just aid, but it's the U.S. Agency for International Development. It's part of the State Department. Uh, we have an administrator who is not a cabinet level person, but uh, it, it uh, he or she serves um, under the Secretary of State. So we are the the development part. The three D's of our foreign policy are defense, diplomacy, and development. And everybody knows defense and diplomacy, but a fewer people know about the work that we do around the world in development. And so I worked for uh, four years in the Obama administration as the senior advisor for international education at the U.S. Agency for International Development. That is a mouthful, but so incredibly important. Oh, my goodness. So tell me a little bit about the importance of, of your work and, and why development work and education is, is so critical for the U.S. to be doing uh, in other countries. Well, it's important for two reasons, really. Uh, first of all, is that we all want to feel safe. We want to feel safe in our own homes and safe in our own country, but we want to feel um, safe in the world. We want our country to be safe and the people in it. And so development is for that purpose. The other purpose is for, uh, for economic reasons. We want to be prosperous. We want people in our country. We want people in rural areas to be prosperous. So the, the resources that we invest in countries around the world in developing countries is to make sure to bring people into the middle class to raise their standard of living because when we do, then they become our trading partners. Uh, and that's pretty evident all over the world uh, right now. So we've raised the standard of living for people in developing countries and now they need more protein, right? They want to buy our products. They want to buy our dairy products. They want to buy, uh, they want meat. Um, and they want their kids to be able to get an education. And if their kids get an education, then they're going to be less likely to join the kinds of groups that, that want to do us harm in the United States. So those are the two most important reasons to invest. So Chrissy, I, I just have a question here then. Uh, what, what does that look like practically, right? When you say bring people into the middle class and encourage people to become our trading partners, then what does that look like practically? How do we how do we encourage that kind of behavior? What what kind of activities do we need to engage in to 
make those connections happen to open those new markets for American farmers here in Iowa? Well, let me just start by saying that USAID was created by John Kennedy uh, and uh, along when he started the Peace Corps, right? So a lot of people who work at USAID were former Peace Corps workers. And the original uh, mission of USAID was to feed people and to take care of them in disasters. And USAID still does that, whether it's Haiti or earthquakes or civil war around the world. Uh, but more and more, we have been working to, like with farmers, with, share, uh, uh, with small holder farmers around the world to help them realize that you can plant cover crops. It's helping with sanitation. Uh, it's helping with energy. And my part of this was in education because we believe in this country, you know, it's one of the, our shared beliefs in this country that education is one of the tools that we have for helping people uh, have prosperity and to be able to offer their kids more than they had. And the same thing is true in countries all over the world. Parents want their children to be able to go to school. 250 million children around the world do not know how to read. Uh, we know, we have the data to show that and we rely, we make our, all of our decisions at USA based on data, but we have the data to show that if you educate a girl, a, a girl in rural Malawi, in rural Kenya, in rural Asia someplace, if you do that, then that girl is going to be a better farmer. She will be able to read the extension information and find out how to produce more crops. She will be a healthier woman. She'll make the decision on her own to space her children and probably have fewer of them. She will make sure that her own children get an education. And what happens if you look at the countries that have invested in women, uh, their gross national product goes up hmm. and the, the standard of living grows up. And we have the data to show all of that. So uh, we make our first investment in teaching kids to read and teaching teachers to teach kids. And I always say when I'm talking to people about the work that I do, that the same thing happened here in Iowa, for instance, when my grandmother was growing up on the plains, it's no different. We're just, uh, you know, 50, 100 years maybe removed from, uh, from what's happening in some of these developing countries. But the same thing happened on the plains when you erected small uh, one-room schoolhouses and kids had to walk. Uh, in these countries, kids are walking 20 miles a day just to get an education. And we've all heard our parents in the Depression or our grandparents or great-grandparents talking about how far they had to walk to school, but that happened right here in Iowa. And because um, the Methodist established colleges in little towns all across this country, my grandmother got an education and her father sent her to Iowa Westland in Mount Pleasant for one year. That was huge because she went to college for one year and then she made sure that her daughters had two years of college education and they taught at one room schoolhouses. And then they put my dad through school and then my dad paid for my college education. So I'm like two generations removed. So what I'm seeing as I travel around the world is that I'm seeing that same thing happen that happened here on the prairie happen in, in countries in Africa and countries in Southeast Asia, uh, countries in Afghanistan and Pakistan. We have more young people who've gone off to uh, join the military and to go to places like Afghanistan, and Iraq and rural America sends more kids into the military. And so what I say to their parents and their grandparents is, look, because your kids went to Afghanistan, because the National Guard went there or they went there in service to our country, 8 million more kids are in school because of what they did. And two thirds of them are girls. And that will change Afghanistan forever. You can't take that away. Uh, we may bring our soldiers home as we should at some point, but you can't take away the education that you gave them and that will transform those countries. And that's what we're doing in those countries and we're seeing the difference. So uh, for me, it was, it was a reminder uh, in some cases every day of what happened in our own country. I know that the work that we're doing is making a difference in terms of making those places safer places to live. And if they're safer places to live, then we are safer here uh, in this country for sure. That's incredible. And Kellen, I know you had some questions on the domestic side of things. So let's transition from the global stage to how the U.S. is, is changing domestic education as well. You mentioned that you, you served on the Education Unity Task Force. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Uh, you mentioned it's, it's composed of eight, eight people, right, from, from various different places. And 
Uh, it sounds like it's it's uh, kind of a big deal, right? The, these kinds of ideas coming out of this task force ended up on uh, different platforms, right? Yes. Let me just say that as passionate as I am about international education, uh, I have been a uh, an educator for 50 years, and all but four years of that was involved in domestic education. So I am by trade an eighth grade language arts teacher. I've been a professor at Westland. And so domestic education is really, really important to me. I chose not to go to the Department of Education because I wanted to do the international piece. But my expertise, if I have any, is really in, in domestic education, uh, specifically in secondary. So uh, the Unity Task Force happened after the Democratic caucuses and Joe Biden was our nominee, but there were a lot of good ideas out there. And as you know, in the Democratic Party, it takes a little while to heal. So there was a part of the process that had never happened before. And that was that uh, the Biden campaign asked uh, people, policy people from the Sanders campaign and also from the Warren campaign uh, to join. Uh, and there were six, maybe six different task forces. I think there were six. Uh, but the Biden campaign asked me to be one of the Biden people on the Unity Task Force. Um, and so it was fascinating because we were instructed to come up with the game plan to give to the platform committee for what uh, the Democrats would stand for in the general election. So we all came with our own agendas. I was particularly interested, you know, in the end, I pounded the table and said, Pell Grants, Pell Grants. You know, I serve as the vice president of the board of directors of Iowa Wesleyan University. And, uh, and we, um, we really serve an underserved community, which is the way that college education needs to go in the future. We need to uh, we follow the demographics. Uh, so, so I pounded the table over Pell Grants and said, we need to make sure that we, uh, that it's a good program. We need to double it. It was something the Biden campaign was really interested in, but there were other people who had other, they were really interested in making sure that the historic uh, black colleges and the minority serving institutions were taken care of. There were people pounding the table because they wanted free uh, college education for community colleges. And there had been some differences in the various campaigns over these issues. And we, we it was really a great process. And we worked together throughout the month of June uh, to come up with uh, a lot of the things you're going to see now. Some of these things you're going to see, some of them have been rolled out already in the, in the COVID relief plan. Uh, you'll see others announced when the human side, the human resources side sort of uh, of the infrastructure bill is is rolled out, which would be about college tuitions and loan forgiveness and all of those kinds of things. So we talked about all of those issues. And in the end, everybody kind of got to put their one thing that had to be in there, right? And it got longer and longer. Uh, but anybody can go take a look at those, you know, that uh, if you if you Google that and you want to see what it, what it said. I'll, but you're now, when you talk about practical, okay, how does it play out practically? What we did in June is now coming to the forefront because you're going to, you're seeing it as they talk about child credits and they talk about childcare and the resources that are coming out uh, right now in that for sure people are getting that money and those resources and money to go into schools millions of dollars that will go to schools all over the country for ventilation to make uh, places safer, drinking water, asbestos, ventilation, all those things, uh, rebuilding schools, building new schools, all of that is coming out. So these are all things we talked about in the Unity Task Force. And it was, uh, it was a good experience because after a contentious primary election, it was great to see people come together with, uh, with all these great ideas and yeah. kind of work out what it looks like there's a. It's one of a series of unity task forces put together by Biden and and some of his primary yeah. rivals. There yeah, I think there was an energy one. There yeah. was, you know, was that kind of development. Six of so them. So I was, yeah. I was part of the. I was one of the eight people that who served on the the education mm -hmm. unit. And Marsha Fudge was was on there with you. Yes, she was, yeah. she was in charge, and then. Um, both of the both of our leaders of teachers our national teachers unions were there and then we had um, a policy person uh, there was somebody who had been on the Clinton campaign Hillary's campaign Elizabeth Warren's head Paul education policy person was on there so 
we really represented at least the three campaigns. Yeah, the big, the big uh, primary contenders. Yeah, nice. That's great. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about uh, rural colleges. Um, we've certainly seen our changes that have happened here in Mount Pleasant over the last couple of years with Iowa Wesleyan. Um, there's, there's obviously a lot of post-secondary institutions that are struggling right now. Um, what, what in your mind are some of the things that need to change? Uh, to help save colleges and universities in rural areas? And why are these rural colleges important for rural economic development? Well, that's, it's a huge topic. We could talk about that for a, a long time, but let me just start with, let me start where, with where we are right now. And, and uh, not that this is the end, it's really the beginning, but we have created a really unique uh, collaboration with Southeastern Community College. It'll be probably the first in the country uh, to really do it quite this way. Other places have have had some collaborations and partnerships between private colleges and community colleges, and we've looked at those. Uh, But this is going to be unique. And so I think people uh, are all over the country are going to be looking to Iowa Westland uh, and at Southeastern to see how we move forward with this, uh, with our collaboration, because I think this is the wave of the future. And let me just say that I am so excited about this because uh, for years I have felt in, in my congressional campaign talked about this, that we need to think regionally always. But in terms of a rural economy uh, to really bring the 13 counties of the Southeastern corner of Iowa together around an issue around agriculture, which is the heart of our economy um, and not just out on a tractor being a farmer, but agriculture writ large, all of the jobs, starting with a job that only requires a high school education or some sort of certificate, all the way up to people who are uh, uh, physicists or engineers who are creating uh, systems, uh, who are figuring out how to use drones or figuring out uh, precision farming or how you pelletize hog manure, right? Who are figuring out all of those things that are gonna boost the economy. We have that and we're building that right now in Southeast Iowa. And I think it's going to be a model for the whole country because there are a lot of small colleges suffering um, and Westland as hard as it has been, uh, one of the things that we now know from data that's surfacing is with changing demographics in this country if a college and university is going to survive, especially the small colleges like Wesleyan, they have to attract students who would not necessarily have normally gone to college, right? So it has, we have to attract uh, kids of color, kids who uh, are minorities, um, and Wesleyan has become a minority serving institution. Uh, And so uh, that, that's the wave of the future. And if colleges are not, we know that if colleges are not meeting the needs of that particular uh, population, then they're probably not going to thrive. And we, we got to jump on people. Uh, if you look at our enrollment, it has increased incredibly uh, over the last couple of years. We, we have jumped uh, percentage-wise much farther ahead. Uh, other people are struggling for students and we aren't. So uh, we're really excited about the opportunities that we have ahead of us. And I think it will have a huge economic impact on Southeast Iowa. If you think about Westland uh, and the economic impact uh, of $50 million, you add Southeastern Southeastern into that and the economic impact on this region. Uh, and then you start adding the kinds of uh, agri- bringing agribusiness together to define what the jobs are. Um, I think uh, we have a winning combination here, and I think that it really bodes well for the future of, of our corner of Iowa. And, you know, for, for our listeners who aren't necessarily from Iowa, um, if, you, if you think that Christy's last name sounds somewhat familiar, uh, we didn't have her on because of this. We wanted her, her expertise on education specifically, but her husband is the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture, Tom Vilsack. So, when she talks about ag, she knows what she's talking about in terms of rural development and agribusiness and so on. I uh, just want to put that out there just for so our listeners know uh, that we have those connections on, on that front. And she has those connections. At our house is a lot about agriculture and education and where it comes together. So food right. and agriculture is, uh, is on our minds most of the time. 
So Christy, you brought up a, a really interesting point with Iowa Wesleyan, which is, is, is in this 8,500-person town, and they're focusing now on, on more diverse student bases, and, and especially students of color and so on. One thing that's beautiful about that, it is increasing diversity in our town. And, and I think we know that that's a benefit, uh, and we've talked about that here on the podcast. And just based on our name, it's pretty obvious that we don't back away from, from conversations around race. Can you tell us the importance of, especially in our educational systems, to have diversity and what that means for our college when we have diversity? Sure. Uh, first of all, let me mention that I, I talked about how we're a minority-serving college. We have lots of kids who come from all over the United States, but we also have a tremendous number of, of students who come from countries around the world. Uh, and that has always been the case. My dad always used to say the difference between uh, a one-horse town and a two-horse town is a town that has a college. And the fact that Mount Pleasant had a college and, and there are 18 small private colleges in Iowa. So if, uh, if you're in a town that has a college that it creates a, a rich culture. And Wesleyan has always had students. There are now people uh, leading countries around the world who came to Wesleyan uh, as young as students years ago, back when I was a little girl, right? So when I went to church, uh, there were college students. I saw my first Africans at the Episcopal Church in Mount Pleasant because they were students at Wesleyan. I'd never seen people that color before, right? So, so that, and when I was growing up in Mount Pleasant, we had uh, the AFS program, which brought foreign students. So there was that kind of culture. So it, it when you bring people together, uh, you know, AFS always said, walk together, talk together, all you people of the earth only, then and only then will you have peace. And so the same thing is true in our country. When you bring people from different parts of the country to a small town in Iowa, then you create this dynamic that makes us, uh, that enriches all of us, absolutely all of us. And so, uh, so it's really, really important. And that's what going to college is about. So for some kids who never get to leave Iowa, who haven't had the chance to leave Iowa like I did uh, when I was in high school, when I was a foreign exchange student, you're bringing the world to them. So that's the benefit. And when you mix up those ideas and cultures, you create an energy that, uh, that really is going to fuel, I think, Southeast, Southeast Iowa. So I, I, see it, I see that as a really positive, positive. One of the reasons we have worked so hard to make sure that we uh, keep Wesleyan. But having said that, COVID has changed everything. So colleges and universities can't think that when this is all over, we just go back to doing things the way we've done before. Uh, one of the things we know internationally is that with technology, if you put a tablet in the hand of a child in a remote village, uh, they have access to, to books, right? The same thing is true in this country. Uh, so uh, education is a really, really powerful force. And uh, if we empower kids and we make sure that they have access to information, then that's going to make all the difference in the world. I have I have one one last question on my list here that I just want to make sure to to ask you, and it, it it's somewhat of a somewhat of a practical question, I suppose. But when, when we talk to folks about education policy, one of the common refrains is, "How do we get school systems to be more practical?" And when they say more practical, what they're really saying is. There are certain skills they weren't taught in the school system that they wish they were taught, right? So let's say, how do I buy a house, right? How do I pay my taxes? How do I balance my checkbook? This is a common refrain from folks who would say, the education system is broken because students these days aren't learning these you know, list of skills, right? So if you have, uh, yeah, if you have, have a thought on this, I've always please. Lived, lived and taught in rural, uh, America. I did my first three years in rural upstate New York in a town about the size of New London or Danville. Uh, and mm -hmm. then I came back to my hometown and taught in a rural community. And now I live in a rural community. So I live next door to grandchildren and they go to Van Meter school, which is, uh, a, you know, Van Meter is even smaller uh, than that. So uh, Jake came home the other day. I see grandkids all the time and I, they're doing financial literacy to your point. So 
if people think that's not happening, I think it's just we need to educate them about all the about things that what's are happening. happening in school. Yeah. <laughs> so, and if you think about our we Mount Pleasant and and Mount Pleasant is typical. I work in Colorado now, so I live in Iowa, but I work for Colorado State University, one of our great. Uh, land-grant universities. Let me just say that I've traveled all over the state of Colorado, and so what's happening all over the country right now is that young people want an ag education, right? They want, Mm -hmm. uh, they are joining FFA again, talking about practical skills, Mm -hmm. and they're learning leadership skills and speaking skills, and they're learning uh, all, they're learning about the new STEM ag, and it's happening in Iowa too, and Mount Pleasant, which used to have ag classes. Now uh, people in Mount Pleasant have raised the money to create their an ag class again. And kids are swarming to it. They they they're just it's just big in Mount Pleasant. So that's great because the most exciting jobs in the future are rural jobs. They're jobs that are going to happen in rural America and they're because everything in rural America is going to revolve and the jobs are going to revolve around water. Uh, in Colorado, they don't have enough of it. In Iowa, ours is dirty. So we need to make sure we figure out how to. So that requires innovation and it requires all sorts of jobs up and down the scale. We need the kids who get advanced degrees, but we also need kids who just have a basic education. But these are really practical. This is practical stuff, right? It is about uh, budgeting, but it's also about innovation and how we create uh, the new agriculture in this country, and kids uh, are thriving on it. And that's not just happening in Mount Pleasant. For your viewers around the country, it's happening all over the country. Uh, I, I was just in a semi-urban school in Colorado not too long ago. It's this huge ag program, their FFA program, and they've got as many girls, if not more, than guys, and they've got kids who never grew up on a farm and or a ranch so most of the people don't we don't have that many farmers left anymore most people who live on farms get their income 90 percent of them i think get their income from someplace major income from someplace else so so we have to rethink what when we say agriculture and when we're talking about iowa westland and southeastern we're thinking much larger again it's it's about the whole range of ag jobs so, Mike, I was interested because you sent me some information uh, from U.S. News and World Report about how we have more high school graduates than any other state in the country, but we're 40th in terms of college readiness. Right, right. You know, because we're an ag state, and a lot of states are, um, for many years you didn't need a college education, right, to be a great farmer. Um, but today... Uh, we really need to encourage our students start taking those ACT tests early in their high school careers so that kids can understand what it means to go to college because you want kids to have a better life than their parents. So to do that, they need an education. And if we start helping them understand what it means to get a college education earlier in their lives, then maybe they'll graduate from high school and get a certificate or get an associate's degree, but maybe they'll want to go back and get their four-year degree later. It doesn't all have to happen at one time. So I think we have to rethink education. We have to encourage kids to continue to get an education, but we have to think of the whole range of jobs, everybody, so that everybody has a good job and that we, we think more creatively about what it means to be involved in food and agriculture and water and animal and human health. Those are all three issues that we deal with uh, all the time in, in rural communities. And Chrissy, can you connect that for us to the infrastructure push right now that's happening uh, at the national level? Uh, you mentioned soon we're going to hear a little bit about the soft type of infrastructure, human resources, and things like that. But this week was all about about the the physical infrastructure that the Biden administration's looking to to build around our country. How will that connect to education and then to our local rural economies? Absolutely. I think the president was announcing the the, sort of the hard uh, technical infrastructure today. Broadband, of course, is is huge. Um, It's one of the things we talked about on the Unity Task Force. It's part of the campaign 
uh, it's one thing we can all agree on. We have to have, we have to have uh, resources committed to broadband. Uh, there is going to be money for uh, for schools. There's going to be money for housing assistance. There's going to be resources for uh, childcare. If you think about a town the size of uh, a rural community of 8,000 people with no childcare, it's a huge issue in Iowa. Daycare, childcare, and preschool, uh, all of those, we have the statistics to show that uh, quality daycare is, is so important, as well as bridges. We have some of the worst bridges in the United States, in Iowa, the most unsafe bridges. It's going to be money for highways. Uh, so that's jobs, jobs, mm -hmm. jobs, mm -hmm. jobs, mm -hmm. prosperity for rural America. And, um, and it's, we know for sure that some of it's coming through the COVID relief bill and some of it's coming through the infrastructure bill. And, you know, it's something we can all be excited about, I think, because it's, it's, it means prosperity for people in urban areas as well as rural areas. But I also want to say that we all know that there's more, rural, there's more poverty in rural America than there is in urban America. And sometimes people forget that. So when we're talking about housing and, and we're talking about uh, making sure people get a chance uh, at an education in quality schools, then that is, that is coming. And I think it's something that we can all, no matter what our politics are, that we can come together with this administration across political lines um, to really move into the future. I love it. You know, Christy, a couple couple thoughts I've had since uh, through some of your comments today. Um, one was I, I think about all the people I know just here in Mount Pleasant that have come back to Mount Pleasant. They're young adults; they're 20, in their twenties, maybe thirties, uh, because of the pandemic, and they don't want to go back to their jobs in the city. They want to stay. The quality of life, the pace, that kind of stuff is so much more healthy here, but. The, the lack of good quality jobs. And, and to hear you talk about a regional economy, hear you talk about moving into tech and innovation around agriculture, uh, to me, that seems like so much opportunity that we can take advantage of with these young adults back in our in our communities uh, and using that to, to sort of spark a new innovative era in rural America around ag. People have to have a choice. They need to be able to choose uh, to live in small places, if that's the lifestyle they want, and still have really interesting jobs, not just jobs that pay well, but jobs that are interesting. And as I said, and I'll say it again, the most interesting jobs in the future are connected food, water, and human and animal health, right? So uh, there's no reason we've seen that it works. You can have a job, uh, you can live in a small place and have a job that that uh, where you get that kind of income. And, and I think what we're creating in Southeast Iowa right now is, is we're laying the ground groundwork for that. Love it. Tom and I came back to small town Iowa, uh, you know, that many years ago. And uh, it's a choice that we've never regretted that we made. We've always chosen to live in rural America. We're going to continue to choose. We live right here. Um, in, in a forest uh, west of Des Moines. And that's the lifestyle style we've chosen. He is running the Department of Agriculture from uh, downstairs, right? Uh, from a cabin west, west, of, west of Des Moines. He went to Washington <laughs> for the first time yesterday. And, uh, and the technology people have been here all day hooking it up so that he can talk to the White House or he can talk to his staff who are now scattered all over the United States because it's not really safe to be in those buildings in Washington. We can't say enough about how happy we are to see some infrastructure pieces around broadband. Kel and I are neighbors and we just happen to live near the middle school. And so right down our alley, we have fiber mm -hmm. because they put it here for a reason. Luckily. Right. But Jacob, you've had to install like this massive tower on your property yeah. to get line of sight. Like, what do you have for internet? Yeah. yeah my house looks like moon base one. I have a, <laughs> I have a, the, the, the old antenna TV antenna tower. Well, and the I think new it's COVID relief bill has seven billion dollars, seven billion dollars in it for libraries and schools for increasing the internet, right? Nice. And that's about 70 million for Iowa. So as an advocate for public education and for libraries, um, and that's just one piece of what we're talking about. That's not the broadband piece. That's not what's going to come with the infrastructure piece. That's just what already there in the COVID relief bill. 
So this is about uh, being able to have the kinds of jobs that you want and have the kind of lifestyle that you want, being living close to your parents and your grandparents and having, and you know, that practical education you're talking about, some of that comes from living next to parents and grandparents. Yes. The practical right. stuff. Right. That's, to, what, that's what brought us here. Yeah. How to change a tire, how to fix your engine. That comes from yep. generational uh, togetherness. And so that's what we all want. We want to, I live next to my grandchildren. What, what, what better thing is that? Uh, and I grew up, my kids grew up in Mount Pleasant uh, with multi-generations of their family there. So that's what we really, what we all want, whether we're Democrats or Republicans, we want to feel safe. And we want that kind of prosperity. And we know that education is the tool to do it. Christy, this has been honestly joyful. Like the conversation is about the future. It's about innovation. It's about hope. Uh, I look at, you know, we all moved back after living in other towns and other cities. And it was a little scary coming home simply because that lack of infrastructure uh, that we were used to and, and had been dependent on. And, you know, we've been scratching our head and trying to figure out how we can solve some of those issues. And quite frankly, it, it's a partnership at the local level, the state level and the federal level. And it is a breath of fresh air to hear some of the things you're speaking about. They're going to come from the federal level, especially that we can suddenly partner with and, and move forward as our rural communities. This has been fantastic. Thank you for sharing all this. Sure, absolutely. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. And thanks for coming home. It's been a pleasure for us as well. Thanks, Christy. That wraps up our episode of Three Rural White Guys. If you want to learn more about the infrastructure package, you can go to whitehouse.gov and just Google the American Jobs Plan. That's what they're calling it from the administration. Additionally, you can find information about CSU and the National Western Center at nationalwesterncenter.org. And you can learn more about USAID at usaid.gov. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, like us on Instagram, and we look forward to you joining us again next week.